And just to kind of backtrack a little bit, um, I work for C-SPAN. So that whole thing Mark was talking about, about not wanting to go anywhere near the National Mall on Friday. I will be in the middle of the National Mall on Friday. And with my job, there's constant background checks, fingerprinting, et cetera, et cetera, for certain high-profile events. And I brought some credentials with me. These are from this past summer in Philadelphia and Cleveland. These are convention tags, and it's got my picture on it. There's a barcode. There's little 3D graphics in here you can't quite see, so you can't fake these. And you walk up to the gate, and they scan it. They being the Secret Service, they let you in. Now, if I showed up and I did not have these tags on me, I could beg and plead and explain myself as much as I wanted. I could tell them who I was, who I was with. I could be with a group of my coworkers who could vouch for me. But if I didn't have this, they're not going to let me in. This is my authority that says I can be here, I'm allowed to enter. And what we're going to look at, and what we sort of touched on last week, is Christ's authority. And we saw that the demons, they called him the Son of God, the Holy One of God. But over time, it took more than that for people to understand that what Christ spoke was truth, that he was the true Son of God. And I want to turn really fast. This is not part of our passage tonight. And if I can get my notes out here and look it up exactly. Normally I write it on the post-it note. But we're going to turn to John 10, verses 37 through 38. This is Jesus talking. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. These works that we're going to look at tonight were to be a beacon that says, the Father is in me, I am in the Father, I am who I say I am. <laughs> we are at week three and we still have not gotten out of chapter one. There is a lot going on this chapter. So if you would, go ahead and turn now back to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 29 through 31. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. This week's passage is picking up exactly moments after last week's passage. They're now leaving the synagogue that they'd spent time in. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever. And they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her and she served them. So Jesus had been casting out demons in the synagogue. Services were over and like a lot of us do, it was time to go home and have a nice meal with some family and friends. Specifically at the home of... Peter, Simon, and James. And yes, Peter was married. I think a lot of us fail to realize that the disciples didn't just necessarily give up their identity in what their career was. They left all. Many of them, we don't know how many, could have been married, had children, had lives outside of work that they forsook to follow Jesus. 
So when they arrive at Peter's house, we see that Peter's mother-in-law has come down with some sort of a fever. A fever at this point in time was quite common in households, and without the advent of drugs like we have today and medications, they could turn out to be extremely serious. In fact, the Talmud talks about how you were to cure a fever, and it's pretty simple. You took an iron knife, you put a braid of hair on it, you wrapped it around a thorn bush somewhere out in the wilderness, and you would recite Exodus 3, 2, 3, 4, and 3, 5, which is the story of Moses and the burning bush, and you would repeat that as necessary. But in verse, uh, let's see here, 31, what do we see happen? We see Jesus moving from this public arena, by the way, which was the synagogue, where many people saw him casting out demons. Now he's in this intimate, private setting of a bedroom in Peter's home with the sickly woman laying there. And it says, He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. Luke tells us with his version of the story, and I love the word that he uses, it says that Jesus forbid the fever. Now, if I came here and I forbid you to do something, your first thought is, what in, who gives you the authority to forbid me to do anything? Jesus had the authority to forbid this woman's fever. And also, as I look at verse 31, something that really stands out to me is how this really parallels salvation. First off, we see that it was only Jesus alone who could heal her. Next, we see that she was in a pretty sorry state, but what happened? Jesus met her exactly where she was. She didn't have to get out of bed and stumble into the living room Jesus came to her. It was an intimate healing. He touched her by the hand, and he lifted her up. And she was immediately healed and lifted up. And then she served after her healing. Like my grandmother, she served as soon as she felt better. But this, she just immediately got up, and she started serving all of her guests. Looking now at verses 32 through 34. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. We're going to go back here in a few minutes to this whole concept of Jesus not allowing the demons to speak, to actually testify on his behalf that he is the Son of God. But when we go back to verse 32, we see at evening when the sun had set, Sabbath was over. They were basically following Jeremiah 17:24 and the fact that they had to wait till sundown of the Sabbath end so they could bring their burdens to this this healing. And in fact, we're going to see later in the New Testament, right, how 
one of the chief complaints of the Pharisees and the scribes towards Jesus was what? He healed on the Sabbath, going against Jeremiah. So therefore, he was sinning and blaspheming because he was healing on the Sabbath. And I can only imagine we've got the meal ending, sundown, time to maybe relax, visit some more when somebody looks out the window and sees the entire town lined up like a Black Friday sale, packed out the front yard, ready to maybe get some healing done, maybe get some demons cast out. And what does Jesus do? He, he, he goes to them. Doesn't shy away, doesn't scatter them off. I'm, I'm on my break. I'm here to relax. I'm here to visit. No. He sits there and he begins healing. Historians think by this point in time that um, Capernaum probably had maybe a thousand people. So it's not a huge city like Jerusalem. But still, this is a lot of people lining up outside of a home to be healed and to have demons cast out. And I would like us also to think about it like this. Jesus has gone from now the synagogue. He's moved on to an intimate setting, such as Peter's house. Now he's back to another public setting with all of these people from Capernaum lined up outside in the streets or Peter's front yard, showing that his authority couldn't be contained. It existed everywhere. It didn't matter where you went. Jesus had the authority. Unfortunately, we will go on to learn as well as we read throughout the New Testament that a lot of these people who were lined up outside the house looking for this healing, looking for Christ to help them, they were just basically doing it because they were in a time of turmoil. They needed a little help. Heal me. Fix me up. Cast out this demon from my cousin. They weren't really trusting what his message was. They were just trying to kind of get, just like those people that line up outside the stores on Black Friday. I'm just saying. Going back to the end of verse 34, we touched on this a little bit last week. It says that Jesus did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. This is what is called by a lot of theologians as the messianic secret. What was the deal? Wouldn't Christ want people to understand exactly who he was? Wasn't that the point of him coming down here and dying for us and having a message? Was so that people would know who he was from the get-go? But we also need to go back. This is where knowing some of your Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 42, very common, Isaiah, you know, Isaiah. Just read Isaiah and you're going to get some great prophecy and you're pretty much set for a while. Back in Isaiah 42, we see that he's very humble. We see that Jesus isn't coming yelling and screaming and riding on a stallion. He's going to not cry out or raise his voice. So the danger would have been at this time with the Romans, they would have seen somebody trying to usurp Roman authority. 
there's this guy coming in. He's claiming to be the son of God right away. People are following him in mass. He's developing quite the little following. Man, this could lead to an insurrection. And if the Romans were good at one thing, it was keeping law in order no matter how they had to do it. So to avoid mistaken, you know, also being mistaken as the, the type of Messiah he was. That was another thing, is that Christ came as a specific type of Messiah. Much of the misunderstanding was what? He was going to come and he was going to raise the Jews up. They were going to throw off their Roman enslavers and they were going to take back Jerusalem and their land. And so when Jesus didn't deliver that and raise up an army, they were quite disappointed. But we know that's not why Christ came. One of the other reasons that he would have kept the demons quiet would that he wanted to avoid a premature death. Now, what do I mean by that? We know that when Christ is approached in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's got all of these soldiers surrounding him, he basically says, look, I delivered myself to you. You didn't do anything. I could have sent a myriad of, myriad of angels down here they would have protected me and lifted me up and there's nothing you could have done about it. But we know, based again, on Isaiah prophecy, that certain things had to happen. Christ had to suffer. Christ had to die on the cross so that he could raise again, taking away our sins. And getting some angels, getting some warrior angels involved in his protection at the beginning of his ministry would not have been good to fulfill much of that Isaiah 42 prophecy about him being humbled. We also have seen already that he's starting to develop quite a following. Well, he also wanted to keep people quiet to avoid a hindrance to his mobility. He still needed to be able to get around. And he was struggling enough as it is at times. So imagine if immediately at the beginning of his ministry, he's going around telling people he's the son of God. Even more people would throng. Number one, to see who this crazy person was claiming to be the son of God. And also seeing even more miracles happen, thus leading to greater crowds. Like Brian calls him, at this point in his ministry, he, he is a, a rock star. He's very popular. People follow him around, but it can get even greater than that. I remember a few years ago, I was in New York City, and I'd had some dinner, and I was wandering around the, uh, down near the East Village, and there was a, a comic book store I wanted to stop in because I'm cool that way. And as I'm a few blocks away, I can hear this like, crowd. And I look and I can see these red letters for on top of a building, AMC. Like, is there a movie premiere in town? What is going on? I gotta go see this now. I'm in New York. Let me see what's going on. As I get closer, I see three SUVs with barricades around them and people struggling against the barricades and some scrawny dyed blonde kid waving from the sunroof and found out it was none other than that great musician, Justin Bieber. <laughs> and the screams, I'm sure to my ears, would be like what a dog whistle is to a dog. I couldn't believe it. So the, 
the SUVs pull out and they're running, they're going down the street and there are thousands of teenage girls screaming and running down the street behind it. And I thought, what have we come to? <laughs> so imagine Jesus every time he wanted to go out. A thousand screaming fans. He wants to go here. Thousand screaming fans. I need to go over to this village. A thousand screaming fans. There's four people in this village I want to visit. Now I've, you know, by 500 people, 500%, you know, enlarged it. So we needed to make sure that he, he was trying to keep his mobile, mobility from being hindered. And, and, and finally, and this could be, this is one of the most important ones, is he didn't want to be seen just as a miracle worker. And we're going to see that here in a few more, in a few minutes here, when we now look at verses 35 to 39. Before I go on, any other questions? When, when Brian gave this to me and I looked at it, I said, most of this is pretty self-explanatory, Brian. I'm going to try to pad this out, but, uh, you know, I don't know if I, I'm not a theologian like you, so I'm going to do my best, but it's pretty straightforward. But any questions at all on what we've read so far? Now we get into uh, the crux of the verses. Verses 35 to 39. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone's looking for you. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Imagine the night before Jesus looks out at the wind sees this huge line of people needing healing, needing demons cast out, and we know that he took care of these demons. So I don't know how long that would have taken, but it would have taken hours upon hours. And so he goes to bed, if you can call it late at night, late at night, and hours later, though exhausted, he gets up and he moves away from the town to find a solitary place in the wilderness, so to speak. And then what happens? Well, he begins to pray, setting this precedence that one-on-one um, -on -one time with God is extremely important in our lives. I, I read one uh, commentary that said, if prayer is important to Jesus, it better be important to us. And when we think of Jesus on this earth, oftentimes we don't take into account that he's eternal, just like God the Father. He's been with God the Father since the beginning of beginnings. He's eternal. And yet now, for these 30-some years that have led up to this since he was born in that manger in Bethlehem. He's 
separate from his Father on this earth. He's no longer sitting at the right hand of God. He's down here in this dirty, fallen world full of sin, full of corruption, full of sadness, full of anger, full of sickness. He gets thirsty. He gets tired. He gets hungry. Something he had never experienced in his eternal form with the Father in heaven. So his one solace, his one ability to commune with his Father is through prayer. And so he heads out into the wilderness. He's looking for renewal. He's looking for refreshment. Most importantly, he's looking for strength. Because as we get to the bottom of these verses, we're going to see why he needs that strength. So as he's praying, actually, let me back up a little bit, because Mark does record Jesus praying three times. This is the first time that he records Jesus praying. And every time he records Jesus praying, it is at a very crucial time in his ministry. We are right now at the cuspus, right at the edge of Jesus beginning his full earthly ministry. So this is the first time he's recorded praying. The second time was after the feeding of the 5,000, which Niall, I don't even know, a year ago or so, had an incredible message on what that feeding of the 5,000 actually meant, part of which was to show that he was a provider, like his Father in heaven. And... It was during that prayer that Jesus looks out and he sees the disciples struggling in their little boat on a stormy sea, right? And they're, you know, and he goes down and they think he's a ghost and it's, you know, ends with Peter walking on the water and we laugh at Peter because he starts to sink, but my goodness gracious, in the middle of a storm, Peter had the faith to step out of that boat to begin with. One of the greatest, you know, two great Hall of Fame Bible stories, if you will, the feeding of the 5,000 and then walking on water. And then finally, the third time that Mark records Jesus praying comes in the Garden of Gethsemane, immediately before he's about to sacrifice his life on the cross. So Jesus is out looks for a nice, quiet, intimate place to be with his father in prayer. <laughs> and then what happens? It says, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. I imagine as daylight came up and the house started stirring, they'd look out the window, and I can almost guarantee you that there were still a lot of people outside who were seeking that healing. And they're like, all right, let's get Jesus up. Looks like Looks like it's time for round two. They head to where he had been sleeping, and he's gone. Well, now they're a little freaked out, because I'm sure you've got all these people looking for a healing, and well, they're only going to wait for so long before they might start getting antsy, before they start getting upset. We need to go find Jesus. And they start scouring the countryside looking for him. And it says, when they found him, they said to him, everyone's looking for you. Well, yeah, everyone's looking for Jesus. But he said to them, let's go into the next town.
If you got a highlighter, a pencil, something to highlight it, this, this is it right here. Verse 38. This is the purpose of Christ on earth. Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose, I have come forth. This purpose, we can find it in verses, verse 115. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Also kind of curious what the disciples' reaction to Jesus right here was. I mean, think about it. Peter and James especially, they're home. Peter's wife's here. There's family. There's a support system. They can get a good meal after the Sabbath every, you know, every week. They're, they're famous now. They're the guys that hang out with this Jesus character who, who's healing people and casting out demons. They've become famous. I'm sure of it. And it would have been extremely comfortable for them just to hang out on the front porch all day and let the people come to them. But Jesus sort of rattles them, I'm sure, when he says, time to go. Can't stay here anymore. I've got to go do my work. And that means moving on. We've got to go to another town. I like how his message in 38, verse 38, back to 15. It's that message that exceeded the miracles. Remember earlier I said that unfortunately so many of these people just were using Jesus to get a healing. Maybe have a friend healed. Later on, maybe maybe get some more free bread and fish. They were going to use him for what they could get out of him. But they didn't want to pay attention to the message. And unfortunately, as we learned in James 2.19 last week, what do we know? We know that even the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It goes beyond saying, Jesus, he must be from God. He must be, maybe he is the Son of God. He's doing all these wonderful things. But we also then learn finally here that ministry is definitely moving beyond our comfort zone can't stay in one place for long. Some of us might say, I just want that intimate relationship with God where I can be in a lot of prayer and I can study the word, I can learn more about him. But on the other side, we have the people that say, you know, I'm not really good at studying and I kind of feel awkward in prayer. I mean, talking to God makes me feel weird because I don't know what to say. But so what I want to do is I want to go help people. I'm just going to go over here and I'm going to help people. And as we learn in these verses, unfortunately, both sides are wrong. There's a combination of the two. There's that public ministry that each and every one of us is responsible for. Our evangelism, our testimony, our testifying about the gospel and the good news. But at the same time, we also need to take that time for intimacy in our prayer. Listen for the Holy Spirit. And also learn more about Him. Peter tells us you need to be able to give a reasonable account for why you believe what you believe, not just, you know, it makes me feel good. That's unfortunately needs to go a little bit more beyond that. 
And so just sort of an application of what we've studied tonight, I would say it needs to be those two things. We need that intimate time with God to get to know Him, to talk to Him. We're also required to have that public time in the public eye where we are out there on the front lines, like Jesus and the disciples, spreading the gospel. And it's hard. It can be very hard, which is why it's also a good idea to take that personal time and pray to our God for strength, just like Christ was doing here in verse 35. And then we finally get to the end in verse 39, and he moves out. And it says he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. I really like this passage. Uh, from the very concept of that intimacy with Peter's mother. Immediately going from the, the crazy synagogue, and the casting out of demons and people flocking around me to moving to the bedroom of an older woman who is sick with a fever with that one-on-one time here. And then going back out into the public domain where all of the town, a thousand people possibly have shown up seeking something from Jesus to going back to that intimate renewal and strength and then finally going back out there into the public arena to testify cast out those demons you see that pattern there public intimate public intimate that's how Christ works through us any questions at all on this we're, we're finishing up nice and early Brian did apologize for only giving me 10 verses. I said 10 is more than enough. All right. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight just thanking you for your word. And we know how important your word is because through it, you use the Holy Spirit to talk to us and to help us to understand who you are. And not just have knowledge of you, but to have that relationship with you. And I would just ask as we go out from here, Lord, that we would take the perfect opportunities to study you more, to know you more, to have a deeper relationship with you. And I would also ask as we go out this week, Lord, that you would strengthen us. Give us courage as we face difficulties. May you, if it be your will, bring someone to us. We may explain to them who you are. We would ask for that opportunity. Again, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for this church, Lord, and the dedication of so many people in here for their desire to preach your word, to spread the gospel. Amen. Thanks, everybody.